welcome to the St. Peter Institute podcast. My name is Marcus Peter, the president of the Institute and your host for today. Joining me is our guest, Tony Powers. Tony is a frequent guest on the podcast. He works for the Metropolitan Tribunal of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Tony is the father of recently born Jude Powers, and his, he and his bride, Christy, reside in Indianapolis. How are you doing today, Tony? I'm doing great. How are you, Marcus? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for hopping on to this podcast today. So uh, we talked about this earlier, and we'd like to pick your brains on uh, breaking down some of the mysteries that we just went through in during Holy Week. So you agreed to talk to us about Christ's entry into Jerusalem. Let's start right there. Let's give us an overview of what's going on. All right. Uh, so this is the event that kicks off Holy Week. It's, I mean, that's how we get started on the whole big process. Uh, and <clears throat> something interesting that I discovered actually this year when I was paying much closer attention to the church's liturgies, we never actually read the gospel's account of it. On Palm Sunday, when we commemorate the Lord's entry into Jerusalem, there's uh, a little bit that the priest does in the back of the church before he processes in. And we get one account of the entry into Jerusalem there, but it's very short. And it's not at the spot we normally hear the Gospels. And for the entire rest of the year, we don't look at the entry into Jerusalem. It's just a thing that we know happened and don't pay attention to. Um, and one of the things that I'd like to do today is actually take a close look at it because it actually is kind of important. And it gives us some clues into a couple of really interesting things about A, who Jesus is, and B, who he thinks he is. Because it's it gets really interesting really quickly. Right. And uh, clearly there's a lot to unpack in the reading. So let's jump right into it. Take us through a gospel passage and, and let, let's start diving right into this. All right. So uh, we're the version that I like using the most is uh, Matthew's gospel. Um, the reason for that, Matthew uh, very, very explicitly focuses his gospel on Jesus's claims to the Davidic line. Um, it's also structurally, at least the most biographical because it flows the most naturally through his life instead of Luke skipping time here and there, like Luke skips six months in a single sentence. Um, Mark is just a brief summary and John is very theologically concentrated. Um, uh, but Matthew's is a biography of Jesus, the son of David. So we're going to be starting in Matthew 21 when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, um, uh, so he's been traveling down out of Galilee towards Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, and right before this, uh, he's healing the blind men in Jericho. Um, James and John ask to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. Um, he gives them another prediction of his death. You know, a whole bunch of very fun stuff. Uh, but we get to Matthew 21. And we get Jesus actually coming into Jerusalem for the last Passover uh, of his ministry. Uh, and the very first thing that he does is he takes two of his disciples and he says, Hey, you two, uh, there is going to be a donkey that has not been ridden yet. Go get it for me. And this sounds really odd. Uh, but something that's been pointed out is that at this point in his ministry, people knew who Jesus was. Uh, the authorities in Jerusalem, specifically in the temple, were not fans of his at this point in time. He's he's made them look bad several times. Uh, 
So one way this gets looked at is that this is a way for people in Jerusalem to support Jesus without uh, bringing suspicion on themselves. So this is these two people that are asking for a cult and everything's already been prearranged, but we're just going to send them instead of me. And it's interesting. I don't find it terribly compelling, but I thought it was worth mentioning because it's an interesting thought exercise. Uh, But they go get the donkey. Jesus sits on the donkey and he rides into Jerusalem and the people line the streets and they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, And okay, great. They're laying palm branches on the street. They're laying their cloaks out. It's fantastic. And he goes into Jerusalem and the city is asking, who is this person? Because they're proclaiming the son of David is coming into Jerusalem. Is this our Messiah coming to finally save us from the Romans? Uh, it's, it's this prophet, Jesus. He's from Galilee. Uh, not, not exactly what we're expecting, but okay. Now, it's really interesting because the people's natural reaction was, this is the son of David come to save us from the Romans. Why did they have that natural reaction? What is it about this incident that would lend itself to thinking, this is the son of David who's come for us as, uh, as the Messiah? And for that, we got to go to the Old Testament, because guess what? This isn't the first time this has happened. Uh, so we're going to go to 1 Kings 1. Uh, and so what's going on here? Uh, while you're flipping back there, Marcus, we have David, who has been the king for many years. He's very old at this point. Uh, he's getting ready to die. And so they're getting ready for the succession. And uh, Adonijah, Adonijah, I'm going to call him Adonijah because that's the way that it flows most naturally to me. Um, he is the oldest surviving son of David because the three that were older than him had all died or been killed at this point in time. So, oldest surviving son, naturally he should be the successor. There's a catch, though. Uh, God had promised the kingship to Solomon, who is not the next in line. He was like five or six after Adonijah. So there were, there were a number of people that had to die off for Solomon to be the natural successor. But Adonijah either didn't know or didn't care and so he gathered a bunch of followers to himself. Uh, this picks up in First Kings 1.5. Um, he gathers chariots and horsemen and uh, people to run with them and proclaim it to the people saying, hey, I am the new king. Come serve me. Uh, so after making some sacrifices and getting the people to come through, uh, he's got a following for, of, his, of his own. And Nathan, the prophet, uh, who David has known for a long time, uh, comes to Bathsheba, who is Solomon's mother, uh, and comes to her and says, hey, uh, do you know this is happening? Because this isn't what's supposed to be happening. And then the two of them go to David, and Bathsheba says to David, hey, I thought you said Solomon was going to be king. Why is Adonijah acting like he's king? And David says, that's not supposed to happen, so we're going to fix this. So what David does, and let's see, this is picking up in uh, 128. um, 
David says that Solomon's going to reign after him. So David brings together Zadok, who's the high priest, and he will eventually be the first high priest uh, of the temple that Solomon will build. Uh, interesting historical side note, the Sadducees traced their priesthood through Zadok. So one of the claims that they made is that we are the legitimate priests of the temple because our ancestor was the first high priest of the original temple, so it naturally should fall to us. Just a side note, uh, not terribly important to the story, but Zadok the high priest, you have Nathan, who has been the chief prophet of Israel, uh, and with them, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. Je Jehoiada. Um, okay. Now this third guy, whose name I cannot say, uh, is the captain of the king's guard. So the three of them go with Solomon. So you have the high priest, the chief prophet, the captain of the king's guard, and then some bodyguards go with Solomon. Uh, and they're to take him down to the springs of Gihon, which are at this time just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, today, they're actually inside the walls of Jerusalem. Really, really interesting archaeological digs that you can actually go down. Uh, it's really cool. Um, they're still there. Uh, and then Zadok and Nathan are going to anoint him as king over Israel, and he'll be proclaimed the new king as a way to end this succession crisis that's brewing. So Zadok, Nathan, the captain of the guard, and the Cherethites, or the Cherethites and the Pelethites, who are the guards, uh, go down to Gihon. Uh, and a very interesting detail is pointed out. Uh, Solomon rides on David's mule. And it's very specific that he's, he's actually given very specific instructions that David's mule is supposed to be the thing that Solomon's riding on. Now, ordinarily, when you have a king, you want them in a chariot, on a war horse, um, potentially carried on the shoulders of the people. Like You want him on some grand gesture that will demonstrate his greatness. But Solomon's riding on a mule. Uh, and part of the reason for this, you can't ride a mule into battle. They're not exactly the bravest animals in the world. They're not exactly the fastest animals in the world. You're not riding a mule into battle. So part of this is it's a sign that Solomon has David's blessing to be king because he's riding his mule. And Solomon is coming in peace. He's not coming to make war. He's coming in peace to be anointed king. So they go down to Gihon. He gets anointed. And then they blow the trumpet and the people with them start proclaiming King Solomon. And they ride back into Jerusalem. And as Solomon rides the mule back into Jerusalem as a sign of his peaceful, the, the point of his peaceful entry, <clears throat> uh, the, the people that had followed Adonijah basically scatter because Solomon is the one that David has prepared as his successor. And as Solomon's writing to Jerusalem, the new king is entering Jerusalem with the high priest and the chief prophet, the captain of the king's guard and his guards. And the people accept him as the son of David and their new king. Okay. So that's Solomon's entry into Jerusalem. 
And right away, we can see some parallels with Jesus's. We're riding in on a donkey again. Okay, so we've got this gesture of a combination of humility and coming in peace. Um, he's coming in from outside the city, just like Solomon had gone outside the city to be anointed. Uh, now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't come with the high priest and the chief prophet. And this is something, this is my own personal bit, um, but it looks a lot like the reason that Jesus doesn't bring the high priest and the chief prophet is because he's also those two. Because one of the things that we talk about all the time as Catholics is Jesus' threefold ministry as priest, prophet, and king. And uh, last time I was on here, we actually talked quite a bit about Hebrews and talking about Jesus' high priesthood. So we have in this moment uh, the showing that Jesus fulfills all three of these offices. Okay, but those aren't the only two people with Solomon. Who else is with him? You have the king's guard and their captain. And Jesus isn't riding into Jerusalem alone. Who's coming with him? The 12 with their leader, Peter. Now, okay, this is digging a little bit into the symbolism, but this is something that I see as uh, one of those very, very subtle, but somewhat important mentions of Peter's role among the apostles. Okay, so you have Jesus riding in on a donkey. And all the people that are proclaiming him, Hosanna to the son of David. Why? Because Solomon did this. And when Solomon did it, it was the son of David coming to take his throne. Now, now, sorry, I don't want to stop you right there. This, this is always, it, it's always like this. I, I get so worked up whenever, whenever you, you start going into typology. And I appreciate this so much, Tony. So uh, for the interest of our, our listeners, just uh, let's just break down this donkey thing just a little more. This donkey thing, huh? Uh, <laughs> so, no, let's just break this down a little more. So, what you're telling us is the Israelites who were seeing this knew exactly what this meant because Jesus was doing what Solomon did before. But we also see the fact that this was prophesied long after the advent of the great kings of, of Israel. It shows up again in scripture. One very obscure little prophet who makes this very key prediction. <laughs> uh, would you like to walk us through that? Absolutely. That was actually where I was about to go. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so in the narrative that Matthew gives, he inserts a little bit uh, that actually says, this is, to this is to take place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he gives us a couple lines of prophecy. And that actually comes from one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, uh, someone that it's very easy to forget about because he doesn't really say a whole lot else that has to do with Jesus. Um, so it comes from Zechariah. It's a very interesting prophecy because on the surface, it, it doesn't really look like much of anything, right? I mean, the bit that Matthew quotes is, uh, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? That doesn't sound really very important or really very specific. It just means, hey, at some point, your king is going to come and he'll be riding on a donkey. Hooray! Um, so Zechariah 9, um, which is what Matthew quotes, uh, and on the surface, it's, hey, your king's coming to you on a donkey. Hooray! That's really about all the specifics we get. 
at least what Matthew quotes. But when you go to Zechariah 9 and you look at, first off, the time that he's writing about, uh, because Zechariah is roughly contemporary with Nehemiah and Ezra. Uh, so we're looking at the time when they're rebuilding the temple. Excuse me. Um, and this messianic fervor is beginning to gather again because they're still under the yoke of the Assyrians, even if they're, or the, sorry, the Persians, um, even if they're not, you know, in captivity anymore, they're still subservient to them. Um, Zechariah is, it seems to be talking about a king who's going to come save them from this. And he tells them that he will cut the chariot off from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace among the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, great. So he's going to conquer everyone around us. He's going to control the whole world. It's going to be fantastic. We're finally going to rule everything. It'll be great. There's just one problem with this. He's supposed to be doing all this riding in on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. These aren't exactly war horses. These aren't things you're going to ride into battle to conquer the nations. So this is a little odd. Uh, and okay, maybe he's going to do it in a way that we're not expecting. It's going to look a little bit different. I don't know, maybe instead of going in and actually conquering all this territory, he's going to diplomatically get them to serve him. Eh, well, he'll figure it out. He's, he's the Messiah. He'll get it covered. Um, but the prophecy goes on a little bit and makes it a little bit more interesting. Um, so doo -doo 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 -doo. hang on, let me, let me find the right spot. Okay. So, Zechariah goes on to say that, and as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, for today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will arouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Fantastic! We're getting our captives set free. This watery pit imagery is a little bit weird. Um... I mean, Babylon has some rivers around it. I guess that's what we're going for here. But hooray, we're going to conquer Greece. They're, they're not a great empire at this point in history. But okay, we'll just go with it. And the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. Um, okay, and it goes on. The Lord will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. Um, okay. There's one other bit that I want to point out in this prophecy before we start breaking down what we're actually talking about here and a new way to understand this. Uh, at the, excuse me, at the very end, starting in verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them for they are the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For what goodness and beauty are his, grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the women. Okay, that's a little bit weird. Um, typically, when we think of a very flourishing society, very... Uh, opulent people we don't think of them as subsisting entirely on bread but yeah okay sure i this is a messianic age i guess everything's gonna be perfect it'll be great um okay some of this stuff doesn't quite make sense in zechariah's own time period that's okay it's a prophecy it'll come true at some point in the future and what we have here is that matthew is saying hey 
this is the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And so we start to look at what Zechariah said. Um, the Prince of Peace has come riding on a colt and on a donkey into Jerusalem, destroying the nations, not in a militaristic sense, but in the sense that uh, all peoples are one in him. There are, uh, as Paul puts it, uh, there's no longer Jew or Greek, and so on and so on and so on. But the divisions that we've created amongst ourselves disappear in Christ. And the captives in the waterless pit that are being set free, um, the prisoners of hope that are returning to their stronghold, they're not people that Babylon captured and kept in prison. These are our ancestors who have gone before us, to whom the gates of heaven are now being opened, and the pit of shell, which we can talk about a whole other time, is releasing its captives to go on to their hope, which they've been waiting for. And the Lord appears over them and sounds the trumpet. And so we can talk about Revelation, a whole of that's, that's a whole other can of worms, a whole lot of other stuff going on in there. But, um, and when the sons of Zion go out and conquer the sons of Greece, okay, yes, the Maccabees went out and they kicked the Greeks out of Israel. Great, fantastic, good job, guys. But that's not the fulfillment of this prophecy, at least not in its fullest sense. It's when we have a certain son of the Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he describes himself, who goes out and proceeds to convert half of Greece. Uh, you might know him. Uh, he goes by the name of Paul. And finally, that bit that I pointed out at the end, where grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the maidens. A bread and wine that are the meal which brings flourishing to humankind. Almost like it's a bread of life. And this is, okay. When we actually see it this way, when it's actually explained to us this way, when we see, oh, wait a minute, all of this makes sense now, it's really easy to see what's going on here. But when you're reading through it the first time and thinking of the historical context when the prophecy happened, specifically when the second temple is being rebuilt, none of it makes sense. This all looks like weird stuff that's going to happen at some point in the future, and I guess it'll make sense when it gets fulfilled. Um, and this is one of those things that, at least to my mind, the story of the road to Emmaus really encaptures. Because the whole point of the story of the road to Emmaus is that um, the two disciples are going to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And a stranger appears to them and says, uh, weren't you paying attention? You should have known all this was going to happen. And then proceeds to explain the scriptures to them. Uh, and as Luke puts it in Luke 24, uh, let me see if I can find exactly the phrasing. <laughs> Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, because the stranger is actually Jesus. And so what Luke shows us there is that, yes, 
The Jews had all of this stuff in their tradition. Yes, they knew these things in, in their head. They, they were things that they understood, but this wasn't what they were looking for. And they weren't going to see it until it was pointed out to them that this is what had happened. And so when we, when we look at the New Testament, there are a lot of incidents like the entry into Jerusalem that really seem like little throwaway incidents that are, oh, cool, like neat, fantastic, moving on with the story. But there's actually a lot buried deep in there. Because at this point, okay, yes, Jesus is coming as the successor to Solomon, who was the son of David. Not only, but the thing is, he's not coming as Solomon's successor. He's coming as David's successor. Because he's coming as Solomon did. So he's saying, I'm Solomon 2.0. I'm the son of David who's better than Solomon. And Matthew helps us to see, oh, and by the way, that prophecy that didn't make sense at all at the time because no one cared about Greece, yeah, that's getting fulfilled. You're watching it get fulfilled among your midst. Ah, so, okay. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The very first thing he does in Matthew's gospel after coming into Jerusalem and not just Matthew's gospel, all the synoptic gospels. After coming into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and that cleansing the temple incident happens here. So that puts a little bit more into this, because when Solomon became king and came into Jerusalem, the people flipped over to his side, and Adonijah went and fled to the temple. Well, it wasn't a temple, but to the altar. And he tried to take refuge in front of the altar. And Solomon followed him to the altar and basically said, as long as you go home and stay home, I'm not going to kill you here. What does Jesus do? He goes to the temple and he sees that the temple has become a refuge of people that are doing the exact opposite of what God has commanded for the temple. He doesn't kill any of them but he tells them all to go home. And it's this, it's this incident that gets pointed to, I think it's Mark's gospel very explicitly, literally says, this is when they started to plot against him. Because it's not just riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, because that could get arranged ahead of schedule. No, it's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and cleansing the temple like Solomon did. He's very, very, very clearly, very clearly claiming, I am the son of David. And he knows exactly what he's doing. This is very deliberate. So when we look at the Sanhedrin coming together and going to Pilate and saying, this man said he was the king of the Jews. Jesus never said he was the king of the Jews. But oh boy, did he act like it. Uh, it, it's it's getting really exciting here, and, and and we're still kind of building up a lot that Jesus is trying to show us in his actions of of act, like you said, acting like the King of Kings. Uh, I just want to draw our attention to Zechariah nine once again. This is a tangential but uh, pretty interesting note. So when we look at nine seventeen, uh, you mentioned very clearly, young men shall flourish, or the men shall flourish on bread, 
But it also goes on to say, and the women shall flourish on wine. And um, there was this Jewish understanding at that time that the new Messiah to come would be a kind of new Moses in that he would bring them this, this new bread from heaven, but also that the, the age of the, the Messiah would be heralded with this overabundance, this superabundance of new wine. And Jesus very literally starts his ministry in John chapter 2, this public revelation with this new wine to maidens who are gathered where? At a wedding. Now, now there's more to unpack there, but I just wanted to point out how Zechariah's prophecies didn't make sense until Jesus did what he did. And like you said, it was only in the road to Emmaus that when Jesus pieced everything together, that they began seeing it. And man, I would have loved to be at that Bible study. Just to see Christ Himself bring all those pieces together. Okay, so where are you taking us after this? I I think I'm going to take us one last direction, um, and this is really something to take away, and once again something that we can appreciate in a new way in a couple weeks. But that proclamation that people make, okay, great, uh, Hosanna to the Son of David. That's that's the first thing they say. But then they say something that should sound familiar to Catholic ears. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's something we say every week at Mass. And it's not just at Mass. It's at a very, very specific point in the Mass. Because it's after the consecration. It's after the priest acting in the person of of Christ has taken the, the bread and wine, has said those words, has called down the Holy Spirit, and they have become the body and blood of Jesus. And we make that proclamation when the, when the priest holds them up for us all to see. And he says, behold the Lamb of God, behold him who comes in the name of the, in the, Lord, in the name of the Lord. That's something that John the Baptist says when he first sees Jesus. That's the priest's response to us saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Because at that moment, that's our recognition of Jesus' entry into the church. That's what we do as we see him appear in front of us, not literally in the form of a human person, but under the appearance of bread and wine, but still actually appearing to us. And that one tiny little piece right there is a perfect example of the fact that the Mass, it's an hour-long prayer. It's not just an hour-long prayer. Pretty much every single thing we say has a ton of background to it. You could probably spend two hours just digging into the introduction. I'm not going to do that right now because I don't have time for that right now. (laughs) But at that moment, It starts with us saying, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Just like the angels are proclaiming perpetually in front of the altar of God in the book of Revelation, we join in that hymn, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. And we finish with the proclamation of the people on the streets of of Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. As our king comes to us, literally comes to us for us to receive him as a way for us to remember this is what's happening right now. Thank you so much for that. It puts so much into perspective. 
and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for you having hopped on this podcast. Uh, I, I really hope that this podcast is as beneficial for everyone listening as it is for me just to just to be able to go through these mysteries with you. And, and you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm also very grateful that the Catholic Church never mandated that at that point, our priests need to be sitting on a donkey as there. <laughs> oh, the smell. <laughs> so uh, I want to thank you once again, Tony, for uh, for making t- making the time to do this. Uh, for those of you who are interested in getting in touch with Tony, by all means, hop on to the St. Peter Institute website. There's a form there that you may fill up and just fill in Tony's name there with, with a question to ask him pertaining to scripture. As you can see, Tony has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to particularly biblical typology, linking New Testament mysteries with Old Testament shadows. Uh, thank you very much for joining on today's episode. We hope to have you join us for future episodes. Once again, I'm Marcus Peter, president of the St. Peter Institute, and I've been talking with Tony Powers, a friend. He works for the Metropolitan Tribunal for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, and uh, Tony and his bride, Christy, and his son, Jude, all reside in Indianapolis. Uh, we hope to have you again, Tony, on future episodes. Uh, until next time, God bless you and keep all of you. Mm-hmm.